0: The story takes place in the mountains of Colorado. It's one of those don't-do-this-at-home stories. Although, given the almost total lack of topographical variety that we have in our state, that may not be a problem. Well, I grew up in, in uh, Colorado, and in the h- summertime, in high school, my friends and I, we like to go up to the mountains to raft on the, on the rivers whitewater rafting. But we were not so keen on the idea of paying some tour guide for a helmet, life jacket, and to sit in a yellow boat. We thought, you know, we can do this our own way. So we went <clears throat> to Walmart and we picked up these blow-up pool rafts, the kind that was like inflatable pillow and the cup holders. And we went up to the river and we would raft down. I remember one day in particular, we were by the side of the river, we were blowing up our rafts, and one of the yellow boats goes by and the guide looks over, he sees us, and he, I see him mouth the words, they're crazy. <laughs> and there was one time that we went up in particular that it was beyond just fun and crazy, it was downright scary and almost deadly. What happened is it was earlier in the season and the snow melt from up high and the mountains was still high, so the rivers down low were fast and higher and stronger than we'd ever encountered before. As soon as we got on the river, we knew that we were in trouble and that we had to get out as soon as possible. This also happened to be the time that I took my little brother along, and I distinctly remember within the first minute looking back and seeing he's off his raft struggling underneath the waves, and I was terrified, I was absolutely terrified because I knew he really could die. It's not funny anymore, I thought to myself. What are we doing here? Total loss of control, being swept away by the waters. It was terrifying. Luckily, the rapids calmed down for a stretch, enough for us to eddy out and leave the river for that day and come back at a much later time in the season. It was terrifying. It was a crisis moment. Feeling the waves and the torrent pummel over us, and seeing my little brother back there, possibly in, well, no, not possibly, in danger of losing his life. In our lives, we all face crisis moments, moments where we feel the waves and the torrent pummeling over us. We feel drowned, taken under, surprised, devastated, hurt, shocked, grieved. What our gospel tells us today is that God is Emmanuel, he is with us. He comes to us right in the midst of our crisis. And what I wanna especially focus on today is that the way he does that, how he saves us is he first comes to us, not after we've got ourselves cleaned up, but he comes to us in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our mess. He takes on our shame first, and second, transforms that shame into glory. So, maybe you uh, have experienced or you are experiencing now some kind of crisis moment where you're feeling the waves toss over you, the shock or the disappointment of, of maybe a sudden loss or a grief or a trial that you did not expect. And the words of the psalmist ring true in your heart Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim looking for my God. The question of that passage is, God, where are you? I need you. Will you save me? Will you save us? Or have you forgotten? But the answer from our gospel story today is that at just the right time, When we were about to go under for the final time, God strides out into the midst of the rushing torrent, and with pillars, legs like pillars of bronze, He stands against the raging waters, unmoved, and He holds out His hand to us, and all we have to do is reach back. This is what He has done for us, what He promises to do in each crisis. But the striking thing is, how He does it is by taking on our shame and then transforming it. But those questions of where are you, God, and that feeling of drowning in a torrent of shock, surprise, disappointment, or devastation, we can imagine this is exactly where Joseph is at the beginning of our story. Turn to the gospel reading. Verse 18 tells us, here's how the birth of Jesus came about. Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph. But before they came together in marriage, she was pregnant. In that culture and in that time, engagement had a higher status than it does in our day. It was so binding that you actually had to take legal action to uh, remove yourself from that bond. You were pretty much married in everything except you did not live together and you did not come together in the manner which leads to children. That alone you reserved, but in all other ways, you were married, And it would probably be good for us to withhold our assumptions about arranged marriages, as likely this was, because even today in cultures that practice arranged marriage, the couple has a final say. They have veto power or they can say, yes, okay, I accept and choose this decision. All that to say, it is very likely that Joseph knew Mary very well. He cared for her and was excited to be married to her. And we know from scriptures that Mary was honorable, pure, full of faith and grace and virtue. She was quality, a real catch. So imagine the shock and the surprise and the devastating disappointment for Joseph to find out, she cheated on me, because that was the only conclusion he could have drawn. Not only would he have been heartbroken and grieving the loss of a relationship that he was looking forward to, but he would have been extremely confused and disoriented. I guess Mary's not who I thought she was, but I respected her so much. He finds himself in a crisis moment, tumbling beneath the rapids, saying to himself, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I find myself in deep waters where there's no foothold. And my throat is parched with crying. Well, despite whatever feelings of bitterness or anger or vengeance that he might have been feeling, he tabled it all and he decided, I will not put Mary to public shame. Now, shame is a light word, it's an understatement, because according to the law of Moses, Joseph could have had her stoned, killed, for the sin that it was assumed she had committed. Isn't it fascinating that God chooses circumstances of such vulnerability in which to enter our world? Not only did He choose to come among peasants from Podunk Galilee, who were so poor that when Jesus was born, they were barely able to afford the required sacrifices for childbirth, but He also chose to come at a time when His people and His nation had not ruled themselves for centuries, but had been occupied by foreign powers. And they did not have the military might or gumption to rule themselves. That's a humiliation that you and I in this country do not understand. We have to work hard to even imagine what that would be like. But on top of that humiliation and those humble circumstances, now add to it the shame of illegitimate birth and the very real danger that Jesus was in from the moment of his conception. If Mary had been stoned, Jesus would have died in the womb. And yet this was God's plan. This was how he chose it to be. It tells us something very important. God's way of salvation is odd to us. He embraces our shame. He chooses humiliation so that he can transform it. So we're gonna pause on the Joseph story for now. There are at least two layers in our passage here, there's the Joseph layer, where zoomed in at the micro level, we see Joseph in his crisis. But if we zoom out to a macro level, this passage is alerting us to a larger crisis, the crisis, capital C, of all humankind, something we all share in. And this passage, this gospel speaks to it. Take a look at verse 21. The message of the angel makes it clear in no uncertain terms, very simple. And basic, what the purpose is for which God has become Emmanuel? why he's come into the world. The angel says, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus. And it means the Lord saves. And the angel says, because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. That was his purpose. It's very clear. He did not come to be a moral teacher. He did not come to be a wonder worker or a miracle man or even a great historical figure. He came to be our Savior because that's what we really need. And he saves us from the guilt of our sin and from the punishment that comes from sin, which is death. So remember back in the Garden of Eden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, They were told not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, for in the day you eat of it, you shall, what? Die. Death is the consequence of sin. Paul says the same thing. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came into the world through sin. And so now death has spread to all because all have sinned. Because of Adam's transgression, sin enters the world, and after it, death follows quickly on its heels and spreads like a virus, and we are all infected. No one can escape. And perhaps we've grown too familiar with death. We've accepted it as normal, right? We say it's just a part of life. We do not remember that death, in fact, is wicked and our great enemy. We were not created for death, We were created for life, and death is the loss and the end of all that is good, and the final and total separation of us from the one who made us, our God, our maker, who created us not for separation, but for intimate, joyful, and everlasting communion with him and with one another. That was his purpose, and death entered and put a stop to it, put an end to it. And we were all caught. Save us, O God, for the waters have come up to our neck and we are drowning in deep mire where there is no foothold. But the angel says he's come to save his people from their sins. And with that, he's come to save us also from the consequence of sin, from death. The Bible says, since the children, that's you and me, since they share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself took on the same nature. He became one of us. That through his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver us and all who through the fear of death had been subject to lifelong bondage. We must never forget that apart from Jesus, everlasting death would be your destiny and my destiny and the destiny of all. And we would be swept away and rolled under the crushing torrent, sinking endlessly into the deep and the mire where there is no foothold. Apart from Jesus, that is our destiny. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who delivers us from this body of death. But that's the end of the story. How does Emmanuel, God with us, what's the path that he walks to get there? Well, the answer is he humbles himself, and he takes on our shame so that he can transform it into glory. Take a look at verse 25. It tells us a very simple fact. Jesus was born. Like you and me, he was born naked. I'd like to venture a guess that probably this is the first time that God had ever been naked before. And it is significant. It's symbolic. I have a theory, and I hope Steve Williamson is listening because he loves theories. Okay, so you all know the naked dream, right, where in your dream you're at work or you're at school or you're walking along the street and then all of a sudden you look down and oh my goodness, I have not put on clothes. It's terrifying. Then you wake up, just a dream. And you double-check, make sure, you're gonna put pants on today. Okay, so you're all familiar. Everybody's familiar. We've all had that dream. Here's my theory. I think we all have that dream because somewhere buried in the deep uh, collective human memory, we have a memory of our nakedness and our shame before God in the Garden of Eden. That somehow that dream is letting us experience the shame that Adam and Eve felt when they disobeyed, took the fruit... Their eyes were opened and they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. Nakedness is the symbol of humanity's shame. No other species wears clothes. And the little poodle walking down the street with a sequin vest, that vest, that doesn't count. I'm pretty sure that wasn't the poodle's idea. God comes to embrace fallen humanity right where we are and so he is born in nakedness. More importantly, he dies in nakedness. Not old and full of years, clothed and under the covers with his family gathering around saying, well done, good and faithful servant. He dies naked and exposed on the cross. We overlook the fact that he was completely naked because so often our crucifixes and our paintings of the crucifixion, they depict a loincloth or something covering him. Well, that's for decency. But if we look closely enough at the actual accounts, we find, no, he was totally stripped, all his clothes taken from him. Imagine that for yourself and your arms nailed up against the cross, unable to cover your shame. Although Jesus had never disobeyed, he had never earned that shame for himself, yet he so fully embraces fallen humanity That he takes on the shame of our disobedience, of our nakedness, and he makes it his own. He takes Adam's shame and the nakedness of the garden, and he nails it to the cross to do away with it forever. And Paul also says that somehow, mysteriously, at this moment, Jesus becomes sin. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so in the same way that in ancient Israel, when the priest was offering the animal sacrifices, there was a spiritual transference, taking the sin of the people, putting it on to the animal, and then sacrificing the animal, so too Jesus on the cross takes all of our sin and shame. He does that so that when he dies, he might extinguish the shame and the sin With him. When his body dies, so does the sin that his body has become. But the shame of the cross transforms to the glory of the resurrection, and he rises again from the grave, but sin does not rise. And the shame that we have known from the garden does not rise again. And this is how Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, our blessed Savior, defeated both sin and death. For our sake. He embraced shame. And he transformed it to glory. So do not be afraid. To embrace the shame or the humiliation of another. Okay, so go back to the beginning when we were talking about that feeling of being swept under the crisis. Waters, the torrent, the raging river. And some of you are in a crisis moment right now. Some of you are dealing with fear. Some of you are dealing with that disappointment. Others of you, you are not now, but you will soon enough. And could it be that in your crisis, lowercase c, crisis, the way through and the solution is to somehow open yourself and say, Lord, is there a way that in this crisis I might take on the shame of another that is not my own? Is there a way that I could take on humiliation that does not belong to me? And rather than defend myself and justify myself, allow myself to be unjustly humiliated. Is there a way that through this crisis I might go by taking on the shame of another? Because that's what Jesus did for you, and it's what he asked Joseph to do. Let's take a look again. All right, we've zoomed out. Let's zoom back in, back to the micro level, back to Joseph where we left him still reeling from the shock and disappointment of his crisis. The angel meets him and calls him son of David, reveals that God has come to earth. The long-awaited Messiah is here, the promised and anointed one, and you, Joseph, will be a father to him. And Mary will be your wife, And she is more pure and more upright than even you guessed. Wow, from drowning under the torrent, now Joseph is soaring on the heights. Can you imagine? It must have felt surreal. But in order for Joseph to experience that transformation, he has to step into the shame of someone else. If he had not stepped into Mary's shame, he would not have experienced becoming the earthly father of the Messiah. So what does the angel instruct him to do? What's the way forward? The next step, embrace the shame. Take Mary to be your wife. Embrace the shame of illegitimate birth and make that your own. Because you see, either Joseph would have been ridiculed for marrying a prostitute, or they would have assumed, "Of oh, Joseph, you're the father of that illegitimate child. And if we were studying the Gospel of Luke, we'd have plenty of opportunity to learn more about Mary, who's the main figure in that story, and how she also, in a deep, deep, wonderful way, embraces shame, takes it on, not knowing exactly what was going to come of it, because she wanted to obey God for the love of Him. And so together, Mary and Joseph, they show us, they mirror and imitate God Himself, who precisely at this same time is himself taking on shame that is not our own, and the humiliation of fallen human nature, so that he might transform it into glory. The sermon title today is Waking Up to the Supernatural. And the fact is this whole story and the mystery of what God has done in the incarnation is supernatural. To be awake to it means simply to believe in it and to believe that it is for you. Maybe you're in that crisis moment, and you feel that God is still up the hill, or maybe He's on the shore, and He's yelling at you, come swim to the side, and then I'll help you out. Let your faith rise and believe that no, at just the right time, when you need it, He will come to save you. He is God Emmanuel. But maybe the craziest thing and, and the most supernatural thing of all is that what God has done in the, in the incarnation, he wants to do in you as well, in each of us, in a way. True, you and I will never become the eternal Son of God. That job is taken. But you and I will become adopted sons and daughters, receiving the eternal life of God unto everlasting ages. God wants to join himself to human flesh and blood again, this time in you. Twice in our story, we are told, first by the narrator, then by the angel, that Jesus is conceived in the, Holy, in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and this is crucial. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is formed in the Virgin Mary. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is formed in you, not in the womb, but he is conceived in your heart. And so Paul prays that wonderful prayer from Ephesians 3. He says, Father, I pray that out of your glorious might and strength, you would through the Spirit fill this church in their inner being that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. So that same pattern with the Virgin Mary, through the Holy Spirit, Christ is formed in us. God joining himself to humanity and joining humanity to himself. There's no greater glory than this. But it comes through the price of deep shame. So if Christ is to be formed in us, then we must not be surprised when our growth, our maturity, our journey to godliness and Christ-likeness comes by walking the same path that Jesus did and embracing the shame, perhaps the shame of another, so that whatever crisis we are in could be transformed to His glory. I want to end with a a story of a good friend of mine who did something like this. He's in ministry and when he was studying for ministry, he had an internship at a church and he was there for a year. And while he was there, by his own admission, he was a little confused and not a bit proud. And so, he hurt many people in the congregation. Well, time passed, and he left the church and went on to other things. But the pastor of that church was going to be gone for a weekend, so he called my friend and said, can you fill in for me? Can you preach? So my friend was then in council with an older man and, and said, well, what do I do? Do I apologize to the people in the sermon? And the older man said, ah, it's a good intention, but maybe not appropriate for a sermon. So my friend comes to the church, he stands up in front of the people and before he speaks, he looks and he sees on their faces sadness and hurt. They were not excited to see him there. And in that moment, he realized what Jesus has done for me in taking my shame and transforming it into glory. That was, that was so much greater than this. This is nothing, I, I can do this. And so in that moment, he stopped. And before he even began his sermon, he apologized to the church. He said, when I was here, I, I hurt a number of you, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And he humbled himself, and the transformation was immediate. He said, I saw their faces light up with joy, and with joy I preached, and with joy they received the word, and God worked a great salvation that day. I want to end with a quote by Mother Teresa. She says, we learn humility through accepting humiliations cheerfully. Do not let a chance pass you by. It is so easy to be proud, harsh, moody, and selfish, but we have been created for greater things. Why stoop down to things that will spoil the beauty of our hearts? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.